Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, April 15th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and then answering some listener questions in the mailbag. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Huaytran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right. So we have three news items to talk about. Uh, all of them are, are, you know, various shades of uh, exciting and interesting, I think. So, uh, Chris, let's talk about um, what is arguably the biggest piece of news that came out today, which is that Indiana Jones 5 has just gained a new cast member. Yes, Ben. That new cast member. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. But anyway, let's keep going. Anyway, that new cast member is Mads Mikkelsen, uh, who, of course, is known for Hannibal and uh, the recent Another Round. And he was in Doctor Strange and he was in Rogue One and Casino Royale. He's in everything. He's a very prolific very good, very well-known, well-liked actor. And now he's joining Indiana Jones 5. Um, we don't know who he's playing. I feel like everyone, including us, is going to assume he's going to play, the, you know, the bad guy, because that's kind of what Hollywood makes him, him do. You know, he, you know, he's a, outside of Hollywood in foreign films. He doesn't always play the villain, but Hollywood has kind of sort of typecast him in, in the bad guy role. But uh, we don't know who he's playing. And a part of me really wants him to not be the bad guy. You know, don't get me wrong. I'll, I'll be happy with whatever he does because I think he's a good actor and it's always fun to watch him work. But I really want him to be like sort of like the bumbling sidekick. I just think that would be a lot more entertaining and he can be funny. You know, he can, you know, Hollywood doesn't let him be funny that often, but it'd be great if they let him play, you know, sort of a lighter character than normal. Yeah, how fun would it be if he was playing like the bumbling, bespectacled nerd guy who was a right. professor at Indies University and gets dragged in unwittingly, unwittingly to the expedition and Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the, the villain. Like that would right. be such a fun reversal. Or he could be playing Mutt Williams. They just don't acknowledge it at all. They're just like, oh, my son, Mutt Williams is here. And Mad Mil- he has a German accent. <laughs> yeah. Mad Mickelson walks in wearing that like leather jacket and that hat. He's like, hello, father. Let's go on another adventure. 
It is I, Mutt. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I, your oh, son, Mutt Williams. Amazing. Well, uh, I mean, I don't think we're going to top. I don't think we're going to top that. So let's just move on to our next item, which is uh, the. Um, I guess this is a, a spinoff of Dracula that Universal is developing. It's called Renfield. And HT, that movie has found a director. Tell me about that project. Yes, Renfield, which is going to be centering around the uh, unhinged henchman of Dracula, uh, has found a director in Chris McKay, who is directing the upcoming Chris Pratt action flick, The Tomorrow War, and has directed the co-directed the Lego movie and directed the Lego Batman movie. He uh, takes over as director after Dexter Fletcher, who directed Rocketman, was initially set uh, to helm the movie, but uh, Fletcher has apparently set a, stepped aside, and Chris McKay is now in the directing chair and is producing as well. So, AC, remind me again who, like, what the what I need to know about this character. You mentioned he's sort of like a sidekick character to Dracula. Um, you and I have both read Dracula. Chris, I know you're a big Dracula fan as well. Uh, just for people who may not be super familiar with that story, who is Renfield exactly? Yeah, Renfield is a patient at a lunatic asylum who appears to have this mysterious connection to uh, Dracula, the vampiric count. And honestly, I have read Dracula and I can't recall much about Renfield. I think he's more of a, a smaller supporting role in that story, but I do know his role has been expanded in further Dracula movies, which I think Chris can talk about. Yeah, Chris, you want to pick up the the baton there? Like, I, I I feel like I have vague memories of Renfield. He's like a a guy who's trapped who in this. Renfield is? So yeah, <laughs> well, Ren- Renfield. Uh, Renfield is basically he's like Dracula's familiar. Basically, he's he's. Uh, but for in the that's on, in different versions. In like the 1930s versions, he's like Dracula's familiar. Um, in the book, Renfield is uh, an uh, insane asylum patient who just has this sort of connection to Dracula. And uh, uh, yeah, he he's like pretty, eating bugs and stuff. Right, right? he's always eating yeah. bugs. And he's then like, like di- this crazy guy, and they, he knows something about Dracula, and that's kind of the extent of what I remember about him. Different versions change things around. Like in the 1930s version, which seems to be like the most popular version, Renfield is actually the guy who goes to sell Dracula his house in England first, and then he goes insane, and then Jonathan Harker takes over for him. But that's not actually in the book. And uh, they sort of carried that over into the, the Francis Ford Coppola version, uh, where Renfield was played very memorably by Tom Waits, the the singer and sometimes actor. And uh, yeah. yeah, Renfield, guys, come on, he eats bugs. You know who Renfield is. <laughs> it's just, it's weird that they're making an entire movie based on this guy, because this is like, it, I, I don't know... I don't think we we've gotten any casting news or anything like that, or or even a full scope of exactly what this story is going to be about. But like, it's just a strange choice. I mean, I understand that that Universal is trying to, you know, they've decided to, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, like basically shut down the dark universe, but then bring it back to life under a different name, uh, you know, with, without that exact banner over it by just developing all of these different projects based on the, the classic universal monsters. But a, an entire movie about Renfield just seems strange. And Chris McKay seems like a little bit of a weird choice for this project. Like, HG, what do you think about McKay directing this? He is kind of a left field choice. He, you know, has mostly directed in animated films and he makes his like live action debut with the Tomorrow War, which we haven't seen yet. Um, and it did the report that um, broke the news that he was uh, uh, the deadline report that broke the news that he was r- directing uh, said that his pitch won out uh, over other directors who were in the running. And his pitch was basically that he could balance action and humor. 
in a way that was huh. really appealing to Universal, and this was this is apparently uh, like the direction f- they wanted. To- <laughs> It's going to be a funny Renfield movie. I see. <laughs> Renfield, you bungled this again. And Renfield like falls down some steps. <laughs> oh, man. That would actually um, be amazing. Like a buddy comedy where Dracula is just like annoyed at Renfield. Like, oh, Renfield. It's like Pinky in the brain. Yeah. But- you buffoon. <laughs> you let all the bats out. <laughs> oh, man. Well, now I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> Not that. So. Listen, Universal, hit me up. I'll write your Renfield script for you. There's still time. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into our last news story of the day, which is uh, a new movie from Mike Flanagan, who is like, man, this guy just never takes a break. Chris, what's going on with him? Yes. Mike Flanagan is adapting The Season of Passage, which is a book by Christopher Pike. And Christopher Pike was a very popular. I don't know if he's still popular, but when I was when I was a youngster, Christopher Pike was one of those uh, young adult writers who was very popular up there with like R.L. Stein And um uh, his books were a lot weirder than R.L. Stein's. They were just very strange, uh, surreal, over-sexualized sci-fi horror uh, curiosities. And this is actually one of his books that was actually aimed at adults. So even though he primarily wrote young adult books, this is one of his, uh, his adult books. And Mike Flanagan is now turning this into a movie. And this isn't Mike Flanagan's first Christopher Pike adaptation. He's also adapting uh christopher pike's book the midnight club into a netflix series so what's the pitch for season of passage chris right so i've never read this so here's the official synopsis which is just really amazing i'm gonna read the whole thing so dr lauren wagner was a celebrity she was involved with the most exciting adventure mankind had ever undertaken a manned expedition to mars the whole world admired and respected her But Lauren knew fear inside voices entreating her to love them outside the mystery of the missing group that had gone before her, the dead group. But were they simply dead or something else? You should read audiobooks, Chris. I should. Someone <laughs> hired me to do that, too. I'm looking for work. Let's go. Universal, I'll write Renfield audiobooks. I'll read them. Let's go. Pay me. Anyway, that's the synopsis of this, which just sounds amazing. That does sound really cool. Um, all right, yeah. I, uh, HD, have you ever read any Christopher Pike by any chance? Oh, I don't think so. Not that I can remember. I've, I, there's a lot of books that I've read that I just like don't remember them. And I feel like Christopher Pike might be a book that I pick up at like a, a dollar store and, and mm-hmm. read and just like totally forget. I don't think I've read any Christopher Pike. Yeah, I missed out on this entire thing. I was I was into, you know, Goosebumps and all the R.L. Stein stuff like Fear Street and all that around that that time growing up, but I, I missed the uh, Christopher Pike bandwagon altogether. So, um, all right, let's get into the mailbag. There's, there's three questions here that I thought uh, that I, I wanted to address today. Um, this first one comes from uh, Connor from central Florida, who also in his, he wrote us a, a long email that said some very nice things about all of us that we greatly appreciate. So thank you, Connor. Uh, his question is, he says over the past year, I've started to get serious about writing about film. Something I wanted to ask was how did you all find and gain confidence in your voice slash opinion? I know that technically people can never have quote unquote right or wrong opinions because it's entirely up to the individual. However, in the world of film Twitter discourse, it feels easier than ever ever to doubt your opinion's validity and question whether you know enough about film theory to give one. On the opposite end of the spectrum, how do you know if you personally like or dislike something or if your opinion is skewed by the popular consensus? So uh, that's the question there. Um, Kind of a, a little bit of a heady question, but I wondered if you guys had any insight into this. 
you know, this is actually a question that I still struggle with today. So I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this question because I I have lots of self-doubts and insecurities. I don't know if you guys want to get into a whole therapy session about that, so I won't go into that. <laughs> um, but a lot of gaining confidence in my voice and opinion has just been sort of doing it and just sticking by your guns. And honestly, I do appreciate when I get, when I'm validated by people and uh, I have people either say that they were touched or affected by something I wrote, which is always really nice. Um, So I don't know if I can answer your question in a way that's really (laughs) um, satisfying because yeah, this is something I always like double think myself too, but um, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, As for the second part of the question, um, how do you know if you personally like or dislike something or if your opinion is skewed by the popular consensus? Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, maybe I'm the worst person to, to answer this question. Chris. <laughs> Chris, any thoughts here? I mean, well, yeah. Let me just preface this by saying I fucking hate myself and I don't have confidence in anything I do. That said, um, uh, you know, the, the answer is sort of in the question itself where um, uh, Connor says here, you know, you can never have right or wrong opinions. And that's really the thing to keep in mind. Like there's no such thing as like people seem to think that like, there's like a uh, quote unquote right. Or I guess like an objective uh, movie review that like, Oh, there's a formula you plug in and that's how you review movies. And I blame shit like, you know, cinema sins and stuff like that. That that's like broken people's minds into thinking there's like a specific mathematical formula that you have to employ when you review something and it's like, you have to have a checklist and you have to have some sort of uh, thing that you, you know, you, you acknowledge when you're reviewing a movie and Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not true at all. I mean, yes, you should have knowledge of movies in general. You know, you shouldn't like review something and like, I only watch two movies a year. I'm a film critic. Like that's, you know, it doesn't work like that, but it's, it's really how it affects you on a personal level. That's really what all, film good film criticism is and all film writing is it's how how it affects the person writing about it and i know people don't some people don't like to acknowledge that again they, they think there is a formula and that's not that's really not how film criticism works. you know some people even say like you should never uh write like i or or me or you know in your film reviews and i don't subscribe to that at all i mean like and again i'm not comparing myself to roger ebert who is you know the best film critic uh, of my lifetime, probably, but you know, he would write in the first person all the time with his reviews and there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to just acknowledge that this is how I feel about this movie. And if you disagree, that's fine. This isn't a, a contest. I wish people would, I guess I just wish people would calm down is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. stop turning this. Like, I, I hate when people turn movies into sports and this is one of the reasons I don't like award season where it's, it becomes, you know, it becomes basically, you know, uh, fucking March madness brackets. Like, I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like to approach art that way. I, I'd rather approach it on how it affects me, how I think it will affect other people and how, you know, what I take away from it in the mm-hmm. end. But again, let me add that I, I am not confident in, in myself at all. So <laughs> I'm probably not the right person to ask about this. I would say um, one of the most important things is just to watch like 
as much as possible all the time. Um, that's, that's one way that I have found. And I, I, you know, I'm like you guys, I, I am not like fully confident all the time, but I think, um, having a, a really sturdy foundation, um, especially in particular genres or something like that, you know, you're, if you, if you build up a good enough foundation of, of watching enough stuff, especially older things, um, then you can draw connections and parallels and and understand when people are you know referencing certain elements of cinematic history and things like that and you just don't know that stuff if you if you skip out on you know decades and decades of uh of work that have, have has come before so i feel like that's something that i'm always chasing is just trying to uh learn more and and put more things in context and that you know the more i do that the more confidence i have it's it's a very you know incremental kind of gains i guess but um, you know, crossing classics off my list and, and, you know, it makes me feel good to know like, okay, I, I should know what I'm talking about here because I've seen all of these things and, um, you know, I'm, I'm able to, yeah, like I said, draw parallels and stuff like that. So I would, I would just recommend like, if you're going to be writing about something, you should also just be like almost all of your time that's not spent writing should be watching and reading and absorbing right. as much as you can. I think like the best the, to, to drum all that down into one simple phrase uh, would be to quote Ted Lasso slash Walt Whitman, which is be curious, not judgmental. That's, that's how you should approach film criticism. Yeah. yeah. You can always learn more. Right. No, don't ever assume you like there's, I'm not naming names, but there are some people who are just like, I fucking know everything and you absolutely do not like shut up. You don't know. like you will never, ever know everything there is to know about film. You could never, ever know that as much as you want to think you can, you can't. And that's part of the fun. That's kind of why I love studying and writing about filming is that it's so expansive and there's no like, yes, you can trace, you know, the birth of movies back to a specific date, but you're never, ever going to, see it all you just can't it's physically impossible and I, that's part of the the magic of studying film yeah and and also like um you know it's okay to have an opinion about something and then change your mind like uh you know promising young woman was one of my favorite movies last year i think i put it in my top 10 and i just read an essay like the yesterday or the day before that completely obliterated that movie and like took it apart in a, in ways that i never thought of at all when i was watching it i was like wow this is a great piece of writing that really makes me think about this movie in an entirely new light and i think it's totally okay to um, you know, revise your opinions. And it's not necessarily always about digging in and, um, and just being like, well, my gut instinct is the only correct option here. Right. I think it's, it's fine to, to uh, acknowledge that, <laughs> that maybe you weren't thinking about something from a certain perspective. Um, and that, that I think is a trap that some people fall into, especially in the beginning of, you know, getting into a career. Yeah. You gotta writing. be, you gotta be flexible. Like the, like the flip side of that, like there's been times where, I'll watch something and be like, man, this fucking stinks. And then like, I'll revisit it like two or three years later. I'll be like, what was I thinking? This is actually, pheno you know, phenomenal. Like, you know, you're, you're, uh, I guess what we're, we're saying here is that movie, movie reviews, movie criticisms, they're always going to be opinions and opinions change. You know, you, the more you learn, the different you feel about things. And, uh, you know, you just need to be open to change, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into our next question here. This is from uh, Charlie from Baltimore. Uh, he writes, during all of the water coolers, I'm always curious, what are you all listening to? Maybe you don't like listening to music, but it made me think, what are your top music soundtracks 
of all time. Any genre is accept uh, is acceptable. Mine have to be Baby Driver, Me, Earl, and a Dying Girl, Sing Street, and Black Panther. Um, HC, let's start with you. Any favorite soundtracks? Well, Sing Street is actually one that I I revisit a lot, actually. Same. That one is, sometimes I'm just feeling nostalgic for Sing Street specifically, and I'll just play that soundtrack over and over again until I'm sick of it. But wow, what a great soundtrack that is. Um, I'm also into uh, soundtracks from the same director whose name is slipping my mind for some reason. Oh, uh, John Carney, I think. John Carney, yes. Um, Once, for example, Begin Again soundtrack isn't that great, actually. I've listened to it again recently. It doesn't really hold up, but Once is still great. Um, I really enjoy like writing to the Phantom Thread score. Mm. That's one that I I really like to listen to when I'm feeling especially like I want to concentrate. Um, This one is going to sound a little basic, but I really like it. I still have a fondness for the 500 Days of, Su- of Summer soundtrack. Uh, I think every piece of curate, like every th- song that's curated for that soundtrack is so, fits so much what that movie is. And I know it's kind of twee and a little bit old fashioned now, not old fashioned, but kind of out of fashion now. Um, I think, I still think the soundtrack is great. Um, I, those are like the main ones I think that I can think of off the top of my head. I would say Dazed and Confused has a really great uh, soundtrack that I think about a lot. Um, a lot of like classic, you know, seventies rock kind of stuff that I'm I've always been into. Um, hmm. Yeah, Chris, any any uh, standouts for you? Uh, I tend to prefer scores to soundtracks. I, I like you know the music without the lyrics, especially if I'm like working because if there's something with lyrics, I can't focus on the work i'm like yeah. distracted by the lyrics same so uh i tend to like you know john williams you can't go wrong with john williams um i love pretty much every soundtrack that nick cave and warren ellis have done you know like the assassination of jesse james uh trent Reznor and atticus ross all their soundtracks are, are fucking phenomenal um uh and like i love like really uh really i'm really into like sad melancholy scores where there's like a lot of violin and there's it's like phantom thread yeah phantom thread <laughs> is a great example and uh the if beale street could talk soundtrack is oh, fucking yeah, so one. good and uh another one is um the last black man in san francisco that soundtrack is just uh phenomenal like mm-hmm. you know basically anything that's just like you hear it and you're like i'm going to cry right now that's what i that's the kind of music i like <laughs> Oh, one that isn't really a film soundtrack, but uh, a film score, but one that I listen to a lot is the Doctor Who soundtrack, the score. Surprise, um, by surprise. Murray Gold. Uh, that one is one that is also really good for writing because it's it's not it's generally very energetic. Um, a lot of uh, feeling like a superhero type of, of music. So, yeah. Yeah, also, I like that. I'm not- like that with um, uh, like Game of Thrones. Like, I don't mm. like that show, but it had a great score it had a great like just music where it's just like yeah this is great I, like uh, I would say spider-man into the spider-verse has a great soundtrack and then um oh brother where art thou if you're in the mood for that kind of thing it's a very specific kind of uh vibe that you have to like be on its wavelength for i think but um but when it hits it's it's really good so and while we're talking about soundtracks i just want to throw out my one pet peeve and this is something that happens a lot <laughs> with um quentin tarantino soundtracks and it drives me fucking nuts and it's when people include audio from the movies where it'll be mm. like song and then the next track is like a, a snippet of dialogue from the film don't do that i hate it <laughs> like i have i have um the hateful eight soundtrack on vinyl and that's uh, a morricone soundtrack and great great composer but i can't listen to it because every other fucking track 
is dialogue from the movie. And look, the dialogue works great in the film, but when I'm listening to music, I don't want to hear dialogue. I don't know who thought of this idea, but I want it to stop. The uncut gem soundtrack did this recently. It drives me fucking nuts. I don't want to hear Adam Sandler <laughs> talking. I want to listen to the music. All right, I'm done. Yeah, what a weird, weird thing. I, I don't understand why anybody thought that was a good idea. But um, all right, our last uh, mailbag entry here comes from Tyler from Seattle, who I, f- I feel like has written in several times. Uh, I love a good opening credit sequence. They seem to have become more and more of a rare occurrence, but when done well, they can really pull you into uh, the right mood for the story to follow. Some of my favorites are the intro credits for Zombieland and Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. What are some of your favorite intro credit sequences? Uh, Chris, let's start with you this time. I mean, like Hitchcock always is good. Like Psycho has a great one where it's uh, that Saul Bass. Uh, you know, it's not like footage. It's just like, you know, shapes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh, the Vertigo one. Yeah, and pretty much any Hitchcock movie has. Um, I'm trying to think. I should have. I should have prepared for this. This is like me being in high school all over again. I didn't study for the test. Well, um, mentioning that uh, reminds me of um, the Spielberg uh, Catch Me If You with, Can. Yes, yeah, which is like obviously a uh, you know an homage to that, but that's a more that. modern, great version of that uh, kind of style. Seven Seven has a great opening credits where it's just like moody. And uh, it's got all that like disturbing imagery and it's a, a remix of uh, Nine Inch Nails Closer without the lyrics. Like that's a that's a great example. Uh, James Bond movies all have really cool opening, you know. Stuff like yeah, that. I was going to say Casino Royale. That's I mean, that movie came out in what, 2006 or something. And that's still like one of the standout ones for me uh, in this category. Oh, and uh, Casino, the Martin Scorsese movie, which is also Saul Bass again, where it's just like. Uh, all the neon lights and stuff like that in in Vegas and Goodfellas is a great one too. I uh, just don't ignore me. I'm just gonna list like every fucking movie I've ever seen. <laughs> every, just, just every movie, every Scorsese. <laughs> Have you ever seen this movie? Like, all right, it's enough, Chris. <laughs> HG, what about you? Oh man, the first movie that came to my head too was Girl with the Dragon Tattoo because I love that opening credit sequence. And you're right, there's not enough of those. And the thing about the the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequence is that it's filmed like a music video and it feels like David Fincher harkening back to his time directing music videos. It's such a great <laughs> credit sequence. So I'm just going to rave about that one a little bit. I feel like there's some good animated ones, but I can't think of many off the top of my head. I think the Mulan opening sequence was pretty good from what I remember. Um, it had like the calligraphy and the mountains kind of uh, started to form from, from in calligraphy form. So that was a good one. Um, yeah. Like Chris mentioned a lot of good ones. I, I can't think of many. There's, there's a, a, a sad lack in great opening credit sequences. Uh, you know what's a good one I just years. thought of is um, Panic Room. Do you ever, where it has, yeah. It's like the titles are like all across like oh, yeah. skyscrapers and so stuff like that. Fincher basically, Fincher and Scorsese have the best credit sequences. Yeah. <laughs> now the mo- best modern ones, like the, mm-hmm. you know, the olden days, they were very they much more common. Modern. I feel like at some point Hollywood was like, we need to get right to the movie. You can't like sometimes movies don't even have like titles. They just like, they just fucking start. And it's like, mm-hmm. That's fine, but you know, give me give me some cool opening credits. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that I've been watching from like the 30s and 40s is literally just like giant notebooks, like uh, you know, huge pieces of paper with like calligraphy written on it and like it'll be like the title of the movie and then you see a hand come into the frame and it grabs it and like flips the paper you know over to the next like that too and it's like spencer tracy (laughs) narrating and it's just like hand that's flipping through or writing something too 
Yeah. It'll be like gowns by. Like they always have a credit for gowns in those yeah. movies. Oh, the, yeah. this movie's going to have gowns in it. I can't wait. <laughs> would, would the Star Wars openings uh, count? As opening credits, I think so. I mean, they're, they're yeah. opening crawl, but yeah, I think it's an opening crawl. It's like count. it's iconic, so you have to mention that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would say um, "Do the Right Thing" has a great one with Rosie oh, Perez yeah. dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great um, one. Let's see what else. Uh, man, movies, man, what they're about so the, good. The Irish, you know, this is, maybe doesn't count, but I love the Irishman's title card when it just says, "I heard you paint houses," yes, and that like gunshot every the, time. <laughs> doesn't even say like the title of the actual movie. That's, 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 that's fucking rules. Oh, I just remembered one. Um, Lord of War. Did you guys ever see that? The yeah. Nick Cage movie. Yes. Yeah. I, if I remember right, the whole thing is like um, it's it, it's tracking like a bullet or something, right? Like the it tracks um, the the journey of a bullet from its production, like all the way through the camera is sort of mounted to it the whole time. I feel like it goes through a bunch of different, uh, you know, customs and like all sorts of um, uh, assembly lines and stuff like that it ends up in a, in a box and, and uh, it's, is delivered to the final. Uh, I, I don't remember if it's cage or, or whoever else the, the, um, you know, sort of like uh, warlord that it goes to uh, ends up in the in the barrel of a gun. That one's really um, creative and unique. Um, any I feel others like the that Scott we can? Scott Pilgrim versus the World in uh, credit sequence. Oh yeah, with the fun. song and the the song yeah. and like I think it also had the graphics from the original graphic novel too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was really fun. Oh, uh, uh, Adventures of Tintin has a great one. Oh yeah, the, we the talked animation. about that, Chris. Yeah, great. Good. Yes. Strap in, listeners. We're just going to name every movie we've ever seen. We're going to uh, be here for movies. a few hours. I, I was trying to come up with a bunch of other ones. The the first thing that came to my mind um, is probably like nobody else thinks of this movie or, or nobody else thinks of this because nobody else ever thinks of this movie. But Lucky Number Slevin, I really love that film. And I think <laughs> it actually has a really good opening credit scene. Um, it's one of those that sort of like plays out. Uh, it has a lot of foreshadowing for stuff that's going to come later in the movie. So if you watch it again after seeing the film, it it sort of clicks into place a little bit. So uh, lucky number Slevin. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's a big Slevin head. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of these stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to this show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and additional mailbag questions and topics to us at peter at slashhome.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. That really helped us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.